Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I am joined today by such an inspiring, incredible man. He's an adventurer, he's a writer, public speaker, and a passionate advocate for Parkinson's. So Alex Flynn is joining me today. Alex was diagnosed with Parkinson's at 36 years old but is absolutely doing incredible things with his life today to raise awareness for Parkinson's and raise money, importantly, for the charity, but also inspiring so many people. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. It's lovely to see you. Hi, Jeanette. Nice to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining me, Alex. And we actually met through uh, connecting on Clubhouse, which is the new social media platform. Um, But it's incredible to have you here. And, you know, today is all about sharing your journey, what you're trying to achieve, Alex, and, you know, how our listeners can help you get to where you want to get to as well. So this is going to be a really inspiring interview. I'm very much looking forward to it. But let's start, Alex, if you don't mind, by you just sharing with people your story, uh, your journey so far, and what's happening today in your life. And then we'll go from there. Okay. I was, I'm a child of of an abusive alcoholic father who, when he wasn't drinking, was the greatest guy on earth. But he would tell me every day that I would amount to nothing. You know, when he was drunk off his head, he would just state that as a matter of fact. And it came to a head when I was 12, when I tried to kill myself. You know, thanks to my grandma almost beating down my bedroom door, I'm still here today. My father passed away when I was 14, and I went off the rails, as any kid would. Mm. And... I eventually found my way and got myself back to together, I guess, and decided to become a lawyer. Well, my idea of becoming a lawyer was to do a couple of A-levels in a year while holding down three jobs and promptly cocked them up beautifully. <laughs> and I went into clearing and I went to the University of Westminster. I met a guy called Guy Osborne, who was a missions officer for the day. And he said, have a look at your grades and he looked up at me and said Alex your grades are shit I said that's a mere aberration in which uh, which otherwise will be a super stellar legal career said, <laughs> you, you think I said I know he said you know I said I know he said right if you know you write me an essay for four sides on is sampling theft because he does music and the law and I did write four sides and I had a 45 minute argument with the guy and at the end of it, he put his hands behind his head and leaned back and went, well done, Alex, you just argued your way into law school. And my 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 legal career went, was, was sui generis, unique. It was just bizarre. I got thrown into the deep end all the time, from running litigation departments in the city of London to 
coming on board for Vodafone for four weeks and ending up having full-time job, salary, secretary, running IP globally for Vodafone, part of the team that did the $53.5 billion takeover of AirTouch in the USA, and going from there. And my, my legal career just went stellar. And I was a year and a half married. I was happy. I had two sons at the time. And I walked, walked, walked into work after riding. I, I was so fit at the time, it was unreal. I mean, I was riding 50 miles a day every day, three half marathons a week, the other marathon the weekends, doing my job, gym work, being dad, husband, the whole kit caboodle, and loving life. And I walked into work one day, went to pick up a cup of coffee, and my fingers shook. And I thought, I didn't do that. I'm in control of my fingers. What the hell's going on? And one thing led to another, and I eventually got diagnosed by, with idiopathic Parkinson's disease. As you can hear, I'm a bit shaky at the moment, and that's my medication. So I was, it, it took me to um, a really dark place. I don't remember driving home from the, the, the consultant's room where he, basically I got diagnosed with the guy telling around, telling me, you got Parkinson's disease, we get, there is no cure. We'll see you down outpatients. It was just as matter of fact as that. And I thought to myself, what the hell do I do now? You know, I felt numb. I didn't feel like crying. I just felt numb, but I don't remember driving back. She's not walking, driving back home. Mm. And I went and wikied it. And the list of symptoms were just ginormous. And I thought, oh, shit. And that slid made me slide down into the deepest, darkest funk that I've ever, in, ever encountered. I was, I was like an automaton. I went to work. I didn't, days would just float by. Mm. I was in my own world. I was depressed. I was grumpy. I was snappy. I was not myself. And I remember my boys saying, are you okay, daddy? And they they were they were young lads at the time, and they're now twenty one and nineteen, and I've got another one who's nine. And but at the time, my my eldest two were two little guys, and they turned around to me and they said, "Are you okay, Daddy?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm okay." And I thought about that statement, and I thought to myself, "I need to get a grip. I need to get out of where I am right now." Mm. Because if I don't help myself, I can't help them. If I can't help them, I can't help others, you know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, and at that point, Alex, did you share with, like, people at work? You were still working. You had the diagnosis. And, you know, did you tell people what was happening? Or were you having to kind of process it internally and also with your family? How, how did that play out? Well, I told my family immediately. And I told mm. some friends immediately. And the answer, response I got was, oh, God, I'm so sorry. You know, all the time, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I would come back with the, well, let's pick the wrong guy to mess with because I'm going to the hands down and everything else in bravado. But deep down, I was absolutely terrified. Mm. And work-wise, I went to the executive director and I knocked on the door of her office, a woman called Helen Bull. And 
I was waved in and I went walked in and I shut the door and I said, I've got something to tell you. And she said, what? I said, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And without saying anything, she just came out from around the back of her desk and gave me the biggest hug of my life. And that was such a relief. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really quite emotional about it at the moment because I, mm. I still remember that and that really meant a lot to me. Mm. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And 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 also, I guess, you know, it's just the anticipation of sharing the news with with people, in particular with you know, in a in a sort of work professional capacity where, you know, as you say, you were flying as a lawyer, you had big clients, you know, everything that was happening there. Um, so I can imagine actually getting that off your chest and having that response just must have been, I don't know, like I can't imagine the emotions that you would go through, Alex, at that point. But yeah, you made me have goose pimples when you were just saying at that point. I can almost imagine being in the room with you. Uh, incredible. And and how many years ago um, since the diagnosis, Alex? Well, 2008 was when I got diagnosed. We're coming up 14 years. You know, long time. It, it's a long time to be with the disease that slowly, slowly makes you rigid. It takes away everything that you take for granted. Walking, talking, swallowing, everything over a long period of time. Mm. So the movement you see at the moment is my pills kicking in. Yeah. It's a little shake. But as the years go by, my medication will work against me, make me move like an eight-legged octopus. So when I plan to do things like climb Everest and put Parkinson's on top of the world, and I say, I don't have time. Time really isn't my friend. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, you know, that objective that you've got, Alex, to climb Everest I uh, mean, amazing. Let, let's talk about that because what you, well, we'll talk about what you've already achieved, but we'll also talk about the Everest goal that you have and putting Parkinson's on top, of, on top of the world. I love that phrase. So talk about what you're trying to achieve with the Everest climb, Alex. Would, would you like the background first? Let's go with the background. Yeah, let's do the lead up. We, let's do the lead up. Yes. And what I'm trying to do. Good idea. Okay. It was 2007, about about a half a year before I was diagnosed. And I I was working late one night. It was about 8, 8 p.m. in the office. I was bored out of my mind. And I thought, I'll phone my mate Quentin. So I phoned Quentin, and the conversation went along the lines of, I'm bored. You're bored, mate. Let's Let's plan another marathon. I said, Marathon, marathon, marathon. We've done marathons. They're all the same distance. You know, I want to do something that's a bit more with oomph. He said, <laughs> what do you suggest? I said, let's do the Marathon de Sable. And he said, the Marathon de Sable. I said, yeah. And it's a 150-mile foot race in the Sahara Desert, carrying everything on your back. And he said, you're mad. I said, yes, of course I'm mad. And that's what makes it great. And that's what makes it an adventure. So let's do it. Yeah. And he said, uh yeah so we were on and then I get diagnosed and of course I'm going through this process of trying to come to terms with diagnosis which I don't think you can ever come come, come, come completely to terms with it mm. but I had to decide whether or not I was going to do the race uh, if I could actually manage to do it mm. you know 
And I did some ultra marathons beforehand to gauge whether or not I could. Which my first one was the country to capital 45 mile. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to run 45 miles because I did the London Marathon. And I remember doing my first London Marathon. And I got ready to reach the end. And I ran around across the line. And I said to myself at the time, that's the farthest I'm ever going to run. <laughs> little and, did you know. <laughs> yeah, little did I know. And uh, so I did the 45 miles and it took me 10 hours. Wow. And it was horizontal rain. It was ice. It was mud, snow, poo from animals and everything else. And it was great. And I smelt like a dog. <laughs> and my back was cut to pieces by my backpack and there was blood all over my shorts. And I loved it. So I thought to myself, if I can do that, I can do the Marathon de Sable. So I went out to the desert in 2009, encountering the biggest storms in 12 years in the Saharan desert, washing away cars, roads, houses, you name it. And they rerouted the, the, the course. But what I didn't realize was at the time that the pain in my chest was actually a viral infection of my heart. Wow. My pericardium, which is the fleshy sac your, hats, your, your heart sits in, had swollen up and was squeezing my heart. And I was running with 14 kilos on my back. Wow. And then I get lost in the Sahara Desert, which I'd love to tell you about it on here, but I've written about it in my book and I want people to be surprised at that. Safe to say, I eventually found my way back out of the desert and I got taken out. And in the morning, next morning, I wake up and my chest is on fire and I can't stand properly. And people think I'm having a heart attack. So they send me to the field hospital where they don't diagnose this viral pericarditis. And they said to me, you should be dead. But I wasn't. So wow. next year, 2010, I went back and out of over 1,100 competitors, I came 529th yeah. with Parkinson's. Incredible. And then highlights from then on included, I mean, I did countless marathons, half marathons, um, triathlons. Swimming is interesting when your legs don't want to work 100% of the time. Mm. Um, but highlights include running 160 miles across the Bavarian Alps in 52 hours with an hour and a half sleep, traversing 1,457 miles on foot from London to Rome via Brussels and Paris in 30 days. 400 miles of it was with a stress fractured right tibia. Did the first 20 marathons in 10 days. Did 3,256 miles across America in 2012, in 35 days, using four different disciplines, got filmed by the BBC for that, which was amazing. Ran across the Amazon jungle, the Dolomites in Italy and the Colorado Rockies within eight weeks. And between 20, September 2012 and September 2013, I raced on foot and under my own power, 6,000 kilometres, which is essentially like walking from London to Washington, D.C., Phenomenal. Abs. I mean, you, you know, you're you're rattling though that off like it's second nature to you. And and they, I mean, most people listening to this will just be like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even think of running one marathon, never mind doing all of those incredible things. And and what's the, the total? I think you were telling me before we started, Alex, it's 270 marathons, the equivalent of. Is that is that right? It's in excess of that, but then, then the last number I can remember was about 270 marathons distance. Wow. I mean, I've done the, the Swiss-French Alps, 
I've I've done the Lost Island Ultra in Fiji between two cyclones, which was brutal and a mud fest. And then, of course, on top of that, I did Primal Quest, where I ended up completing 240 miles in four days, five hours with Mike Glosser, five times World Adventure Racing Champion, and just came away with two broken ribs and a bulging disc into my spine, cutting off feeling to my hand and arm. You are like a cat with 30, 40, 50 lives, <laughs> Alex, because, you know, so much that you've just described there is just beyond comprehension. It really, it really is. And let's talk about resilience, because, I mean, that word, I mean, you're the epitome of resilience, right? How the hell do you find the mental strength, the physical strength with everything that you're dealing with to be able to achieve these incredible feats? Well, long and short of it, I think it's best illustrated by what happened with the first lockdown last year. Mm. We went into lockdown and people were running marathons around their gardens, climbing up their stairs to the height of Everest. Mm. I married the two and said I'd do a vertical marathon, which is 2.3 times the height of Everest, up my stairs. What you don't get from that normally when you think about it is that not only did I do a marathon up, I did a marathon down as well. Yeah. So a double marathon. So 2.3 times the scent of Everest up my stairs. Now that sounds relatively boring and simple, but it is incredibly boring, but it's not simple because the, 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 the environment you're in doesn't change. Mm. The repetition on your body doesn't change. And the impact of that on your mental strength is ginormous. It's a bit like being a bear in a zoo, cage at a zoo. You know, after a while, you start going a little bit crazy. Yeah. And for me, the thing that keeps driving me forward is that there are many people less, less well off with Parkinson's and other neurological diseases than myself. Mm. And the youngest ever diagnosed was a two-year-old boy. Wow. Right. That was back in 2016. You know, let that just sink in for a moment, because mm. what the hell is that child going to go through in its life? Yeah. And, you know, it forces me to just keep going. And I will go through brick walls to help people like that. Yeah. I will go through brick walls to help people like that. But my, as you can see, my medication is kicking in really, really hard today. Well, with, with about three, uh, three and a half hours sleep. It's not surprising. So I need to measure my sleep a bit more, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is incredible. The inspiration that you bring. Anyone listening to this is, I know they're just going to be blown away by what you've already achieved, but also what you're still hoping to achieve. And I have no doubt you will achieve. Before we move on to that, Alex, can we just, you know, for people that don't know too much about Parkinson's, um, can you just... Take us through what what a normal day, if there is a normal day for you indeed, Alex. You know, what what what's part what's what's it like living with Parkinson's? Um, just so that it brings it to life for people. I've got a got an example that people can do listening to this. Mm. Take your left hand, take the fingers of your left hand and paste them in the palm of your right. Hold your fingers on your left hand tight. Now wiggle your fingers of your left hand. Difficult, isn't it? Very difficult, yeah. That's what Parkinson's is to me. Right. So every morning getting out of bed is an absolute struggle. It's not a terrible struggle at the moment, but I know that every day, every little tiny bit of me, tiny bit of me just disappears. Mm. And that's that's the reality of it. Yeah, yeah. It's about rigidity. 
it's not about people moving like eight-legged octopuses, octopi, I should say. But you know, it's it's um, it's about rigidity, and it doesn't affect just old people. It's non-discriminatory. It loves everybody, and one in fifteen will encounter Parkinson's within their lifetime. Is that right? One in fifteen. Wow, yeah. I didn't know it was as high as that. Gosh. It is the fastest growing neurological disease in the world. Yeah, that's that's quite that's quite an impactful stat- statistic you've just given there, Alex. And thank you for describing it so well that anyone can under- try to understand what it's like. And and in terms of your family, you know, you mentioned you've got three sons um, of varying ages, actually, quite a gap between your eldest and your youngest. Um, yeah. So how how is it for the family? You know, how, how do they treat you any differently? Or do, do they, you know, sort of is it do they just are so used to living with it as with you as well that, um, you know, they just get on and find the right way to to deal with this every day? Because it must be difficult for for your family and your friends and your loved ones as well. Yeah, my family, my, my family and my sons. Um, I'm I'm no longer married, and I think that was that's a good thing to be in my current position, mm. you know. And but my sons love me; they think I'm a superhero, which is their words, not mine. And I'm very very grateful. My I love them to the pieces. They're my everything. They're the ones that drive me forward as well, because I don't want them to think Dad gave up. Dad doesn't give up. Dad just keeps going. Absolutely. 100% I can I can see that. And there's a brilliant quote on your website, actually, which is from Sir Ralph Fiennes, the adventurer himself, right? Yeah, yeah. Can, I re- can I read that, Alex? Because I think yeah. it's a wonderful quote. If you don't mind, I, I wrote, it, wrote it down. But let me just read this to you. So rarely does... Uh, hang on. Wait a minute. I can't read my own writing here. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good, is it? I'm going to read it from the website rather than my notes. There you go. They say, actually, that squiggly handwriting is a sign of intelligence, so I'm taking that one. <laughs> Let no, me start. It's slowly going to crap, and I just uh, console myself with thinking that doctors and other high-ranking high officials – you know, I have crap handwriting, so I'm thinking I'm going to the club, you know? Exactly. I've got crap handwriting. I've got no excuse, right? So I'm going to read it from your wonderful website, if I may. So rarely does one hear about such an inspirational and heroic Briton as Alex Flynn. The challenges he has successfully undertaken would be considered seriously hard by anyone's standards and are, in my view, independently worthy of recognition. So that says a huge amount. How did it feel when you actually received that commendation, if you like, from Sir Ralph Fiennes OBE? Sir Ralph Fiennes was really kind enough to to give me that 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 acknowledgement. And I was gobsmacked, you know. I've had people like Billy Connolly say nice things as well and mm. I think George Foreman, the former world heavyweight champion, turned around and said that Alex Flynn, he really knows how to live, which I thought was really quite funny. Yeah. But nothing quite as impactful as Randolph Fiennes saying yeah. what he did. I think that 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 was the icing on the cake for me. And yeah. I I take that to heart. So yeah. 
you know, I can't thank him enough. Yeah, no, wonderful. And 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 more than fully deserved. Absolutely, 100%. So, so Alex, in terms of the what's next for you now, when we were chatting before we started the podcast, you said that you already have reached 170 million households across the world with what you're doing, your story, and inspiring so many people. And you continue to do that. Let's talk about Everest and let's talk about, you know, what you're trying to do with that whole venture and what help people can give you with that. Well, I've run, raced, crawled, cycled, kayaked, climbed across two different continents, 30 countries worldwide, Mm. across six different continents. And I was going to row the Pacific at one point. (laughs) You're so yeah. flippant. You know, I was going to row the Pacific, you know, yeah, like it's nothing. Like it, wasn't, it wasn't flippant. It was, it was, it was wow. scary. Yeah. And um, we were about 30,000 pounds short of the, the full amount that I needed to go. And it didn't work out for one reason or other that I won't go into mm. here. And I thought to myself, I've gone long. I've done a mountain or two in my time. But where do I really need to go? And what do I need to achieve? I need to put Parkinson's on top of the world. Nobody's ever done Everest with, with, with Parkinson's disease, especially not at 14 years diagnosed. Yeah. Next year will be 15 years. And to be honest, I'm excited, scared, energized, and optimistic that I will summit the mountain. I will summit the mountain and I'll put Parkinson's on top of the world. My why is simple. When you get diagnosed with a neurological condition, your world intrinsically becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. You lose your self-confidence. You lose your self-worth. You lose your position in society. Figuratively speaking, even though you may not do, you, you mentally have resigned yourself to that point. And that crushes people. Yeah. Spiritually, physically, it crushes them. And you can fall into the trap of believing that you can't achieve things that you once thought were average every day. But I want to prove that we can go far beyond that which we are told that we can. Can you lie down, dog? Thank you. Um, I want to prove to everybody that we can all still be extraordinary. Disability is no barrier to achieving your goals. And that I want to give hope to people and give them back their sense of self-worth, their sense of self-confidence. So that, you know, not expecting anybody to climb Mount Everest, but if getting across their living room is their Everest, then get across that room. Set yourself goals every day and move. And that's what I want to achieve. Aside from obviously raising a load of money for Parkinson's UK in in the UK and Europe and Parkinson's Foundation in America, and hopefully funding research that will bring treatment within decades, not sorry, within years, not decades. Because mm. as I say, time is not our friend. Well, such a compelling reason why. You know, I mean, we talk about having a strong purpose in life. Um, and you know, there's no, there's no stronger purpose than what you've just described there, Alex. It really is incredible. And, and when, when are you, are you planning this huge venture 
whoever is. What's your time frame? Well, my time frame starts this summer by climbing Mont Blanc, then Mont Mira Peak in the Himalayas, and Mount Himlum in the Himalayas, followed next year by summiting Everest in April. Wow. Wow. So the training that you put in. <laughs> is on there. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And, and, you know, in terms of the support team that you have when you're doing these, these adventures, Alex, what does that look like around you? What's the team like? Um, I'll have uh, Lee Clymer, who's done K2 and summited Everest a number of times, and three Sherpas. And I'm, I'm confident in my team being able to get me up and down the mountain. Do you not have medical support with you, Alex, through through a, a something like this? There will be medical tent. There will be medical med, med, medics at base camp, but no. Wow, incredible! That is incredible. Well, you know, I mean, I have no doubt at all that you're going to absolutely do this. I mean, your strength of spirit, your focus, your purpose, your reason why, your track record already i mean let's face it is phenomenal so it's brilliant to be able to help you raise some awareness of this and and also earlier you know i mean you are such a multifaceted successful guy you really are obviously you had a really successful career in in the legal profession you know you're doing all of your adventuring that you're doing the running the walking the climbing oh my gosh it goes on but you're also a public speaker you're a writer and you, you have a book as well, Alex. I know you mentioned it earlier. So can we talk about the book? Because I'd really love people to know about that because I'm sure that's going to provide so much inspiration for people listening. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine, Greg, who has a number of books that he's written. And he said, well, we were talking about what I had done and everything else. And he said, you need to write a book, mate. This was 2013. And I said, you sure? You think? He said, yeah, I know. And I said, how the hell do I go about writing a book? He said, think of it like an oil painting. Put it all down. Put it all down and then start crafting it. Stream of consciousness, like an oil painting, just put it all on and then start molding it. Create the book that you want people to read. And be honest with yourself. And But I think the hardest thing was just taking that personal touch to it, talking about my father, mm. talking about my relationship with my father and how it impacted me and going through that point of taking myself back to my suicide attempt at 12, mm. feeling the darkness that I was encountering. And that was just, it was almost therapy for me to be able to journal it in that way. And I heard that's the first chapter, and it's, it's a heavy one. There are moments of hilarity and lots of light and fun in it, especially being knocked over by a four-foot number when I met the Pope. But, you know, just, you know, there's, there's, there's being chased by wild dogs, stalked by big cat in jungles, um, lost in the desert. You name it, there's, there's a lot going on in the book. But I need a publisher. I'm okay. for a publisher who's brave enough to publish my work. Okay, so anyone that's anyone that's listening that has contacts in the publishing space, um, they should reach out to you, Alex. That would be amazing. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, 
No, absolutely. Well, it sounds like it's it's a fascinating book, and to get that that message out to people is just going to help and inspire so many. So let's let's see what we can do to help with that. Um, and and Alex, you just you just mentioned you know the early adversity that you faced in your life, you know, pre way way beyond the Parkinson's um, period, and how how does that fuel you now going going forward? Um, when you look back at you know the, those really difficult times when you were a child, does it does it help spur you on, or do you still have moments that are really painful and and it actually takes you back to those that time? There is pain and there's regret that I didn't really know my father in the way that my brothers knew my father. But to be honest, being told that you weren't going to be anything, you weren't going to be a success or an achiever has always pushed me on to be more than that which I would accept. I'd have to keep pushing myself and pushing myself and pushing myself. Mm. You know, and the same has happened when I got diagnosed with Parkinson's. I think I got angry enough to to rage against it and to fuel my my what I've achieved through my rage and my anger at what I've got. And pull out positivity, mm. you know. But I think one of the things that stood out from my childhood, there are two things that stood out from my childhood, but one of the things is that when I was about five or six, my dad had three tons of log delivered to the house. And he took me around to the back of the house where the logs were being piled up by my brothers and taught me how to split wood with a six-pound axe and a six-pound sledge and some wedges. And I was a little guy. Mm. And my father pulled out a five-pound note and said, after I'd split the first log and thought that was all I had to do, he said, if you split the rest of this pile of log, three ton of it, I'll give you this five-pound note. So that's what I spent the next three days doing. And my hands were a bloody mess. Mm. But I wouldn't give up. I think it was about six. And I would not give up. Wow. And that spirit is 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 clearly something that you have stayed with you all, all those years forever to the, to this day really never give up keep going well if you say you're going to do something you should do it and do it well yeah that's a great that's a great advice actually it doesn't matter what field you're in that's great that's brilliant advice for everyone listening it really is fantastic and and so, Alex, in terms of um, where people can find you, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? People can find me at my website, www.alexflynn.co.uk. On my Instagram, Alex Flynn. On Clubhouse, at Alex Flynn 01. On Twitter, at Alex Flynn 01. And at, on Facebook, at 10 million metres, the number 10 followed by the words million metres. I'm always contactable and happy to talk and hear for anybody that has got neurological disease. And I want to tell them that you're not alone. No, no, there is a world of people out there with the same thing as you and that it's okay to be scared, but please talk. Yeah, that's an incredibly powerful message. And um, no, that's, that's amazing, Alex. Thank you so much for that. And I've just got a couple of final questions, if I if I can, if you'll indulge me. Always. Thank you, Alex. So what would you say has been the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I've ever been given was, uh, was a, 
was a piece of advice from my friend Eleanor Sharpston. She was a, a pupil barrister at Middle Temple in London, my inn of court. And in 1980, there was a guy called George Carman who was a QC. He was an incredible libel lawyer. He could turn walk into court and turn black into white, white into black and more grey. Well, that doesn't really matter, does it, my lord? Of course not, Mr. Mr. Carmen. And he gave a talk to these pupil barristers. And one piece of advice stuck with my friend Eleanor, which was seize every opportunity and take it as far as you can possibly go. She did and became Advocate General for the United Kingdom in the European Court of Justice. Wow. I've done that. And it's led me on some amazing adventures and stuff that I would have never even have dreamed of. So seize every opportunity and take it as far as you can go. I love that. Seize every opportunity and take it as far as you can go. There are no limits, right? There are no limits. Fantastic. And Alex, what does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you? Wow, that's a hard question. I'll leave you with a, a quote. I think it's important. Let me find it here now. Right. Beginning in my book, there's a quote that I wrote from my own thoughts on this very subject. So to, to answer your question, I would turn it into strength. I said strength is not a physical thing. It's not how much you can lift or running 400 plus miles with stretch fractured right tibia racing 6,000 kilometers in a year or even continuing to race with a broken ankle and ripped tendons. Strength is you making the decision never to give up, to having the courage to take the first step and knowing when to say what's truly in your heart and standing by it. Strength is facing your fears and finding humour in difficulty, purpose in the face of indifference and hope when others believe there is none. Strength is a state of mind. Never, ever forget it. Well, that's incredibly powerful and the perfect way for us to end the podcast, Alex. That's amazing. Listen, I've been so inspired. I feel very humbled having had the opportunity to chat with you, Alex, and I wish you every luck with your Everest climb and all of the other ventures that you have going on. Um, I would encourage everyone to check out Alex on his social media, on his website, um, support Alex with all of this incredible cause that's reaching so many people and doing so much good. So thank you so much, Alex. You are incredibly brave, bold and brilliant in every, every sense. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.